So hello there and welcome back to another lecture in contract law. I think if I'm remembering correctly that this is lecture number seven. So we've just completed discussing the rules on offer and acceptance and I promised at the end of the last lecture that I'd do a little bit of a wraparound reflection on the importance of these rules and the significance of them when it comes to addressing the fundamentality of agreement in contract law. So all the way back in lecture number two, I introduced a claim that agreement is the foundation of contract law. Contracts have this unusual legal nature in that they allow us to impose legal obligations upon ourselves through our own choices. And that's something that has a lot of practical significance. And there are also benefits and risks to it. There are benefits in the sense that you can hold other people to their promises but there are also risks in the sense that you might end up losing something as a result of somebody else holding you to your promise. So partly in recognition of this risk, the rules in contract law are supposedly only enforce the promises, enforce the conditions of the contract when you have agreed to them. But now that we know a little bit more about how contract law goes about establishing whether an agreement has been reached by following these rules and offer and acceptance, we're in a better position to evaluate whether that claim is true. Is it in fact the case that agreement is the foundation of contract law? So in this lecture, I'm going to present an argument for suggesting that it isn't. That one of the things we've learned so far is that the rules of contract law actually don't care all that much about agreement reached between parties. They care about other policy considerations. And I'm doing this for a couple of reasons. First, I think it is an interesting topic and issue in its own right and speaks to something that's really core to how we understand and interpret contract law. I'm also doing it, though, because the argument that I'm going to present in this podcast is indicative of or illustrative of the kind of argumentation that I expect when you're answering an essay question. So a common essay question in contract law might be something like, agreement is the foundation of contract law, critically discuss this claim, or do you agree or disagree with this statement, critically discuss. And what happens if you're presented with that type of question on an exam paper? How do you respond? Well, this podcast will show you how I at least might try and respond to that question. So I want you to try and pay attention to this podcast on two different levels, or to listen to it through two different lenses, so to speak. I'm mixing metaphors there. Lenses has to do with eyesight as opposed to listening, but okay. You get the gist of my point. First of all, I want you to listen to it in terms of the substance, the argument that I actually make in relation to agreement not being the foundation of contract law, and ask yourself whether you agree or disagree with that argument. And second, I want you to pay attention to it at a structural level. How have I developed and presented this argument to you? What are all the moves that I make in presenting the argument to you? And could you, if you were asked a similar essay question, develop an equivalent structure to an essay, a structure to an argument? And if you find that second listening task more difficult than the first, I would say not to worry because it's something we're going to come back to in our live lectures. We're going to discuss in more detail how you might go about answering an essay question. So without further ado, let me get into this answer, this essay about whether agreement is the foundation of contract law. 
And let me start by stating my main thesis or argument. My main thesis is that contract law does not really care about agreement between parties. There's certainly talk about the importance of this in case law. And we've come across this idea in cases like Smith v. Hughes, where there is a concern about whether parties have reached a consensus ad item or ad item, a meeting of minds. But what I'm going to try and argue is that the actual rules of contract law suggest that courts care more about certain policy outcomes, for example, protecting certain kinds of promises, ensuring commercial certainty and convenience, than respecting agreements between parties. And I'm going to try and demonstrate that or prove that claim to you by citing some examples from the case law that we've covered in lectures to this point. So before I get into that evidence, let me just set this up by explaining a little bit more about what I understand by the concept of agreement and why it matters in contract law, and also then establish a test that I think the case law that we've encountered so far would need to pass if it was to prove the claim that agreement is the foundation of contract law. So look, I think that common sense supports the idea that agreement arises whenever there is a meeting of minds. So I think that notion of the consensus ad item or ad item is correct. The thing that we see stated in some of the case law, like Smith v. Hughes, that essentially captures what an agreement is. Agreement is, if I want to put this slightly more sophisticatedly, a kind of common knowledge equilibrium that's reached between two parties. So that means that I agree to purchase a car at a certain price, you agree to sell the car at a certain price, and we both know what one another's intentions are with respect to the purchase and sale of the car. To put it another way again, we might say that agreement arises when the subjective intentions between two or more parties join up in some way. This doesn't mean that their subjective intentions are equivalent to one another. They are rather complementary to one another. They fit together like the two halves of a jigsaw puzzle. So I think this establishes something. If that common sense definition of agreement is correct, if agreement arises where there is this matching of the subjective intentions of two parties, that would indicate to us that if contract law cared about agreement, it would care very much about finding out what the subjective intentions of the parties to a contract were or happened to be. And if it so happens that once we review the case law, it becomes clear that the courts don't seem to care that much about subjective intentions, then I think you'll have proven the claim that agreement is not the foundation of contract law. As I make this argument, however, it's also worth keeping in mind why it is that we think agreement is important in contract law and what might be lost or missing if it turns out that courts don't care about agreement. So I actually mentioned this back in lecture two, but I think that agreement is important because it has some connection with the idea of freedom of choice. And freedom of choice is a very important value in modern, liberal, post-enlightenment societies. We think that people should have the freedom to choose the kind of life that they wish within certain limits. And if we say that parties are only bound by the contractual promises that they freely chose, then we are, in a sense, respecting that value of freedom. And of course, a simple test for finding out whether somebody has actually freely chosen is to figure out whether what they've done corresponds with their intention. So if you intended to purchase a car for 1,200 euro, 
then you, we could say that it was, in some sense, your free choice to do so. Now, there are certain other conditions that need to be met in order for a choice to be free, and we'll come across those later in the semester in the course when we look at vitiating factors of contract law. But as a first rule of thumb or test, we can say that if you intend to do something, it's quite likely that you freely chose to do that thing. And so respecting agreements, trying to figure out whether parties have reached an agreement, is one way of respecting freedom of choice. So as I say, I think there is an important connection between the idea that agreement is foundational to contract law and the desire to protect freedom of choice. And so if the following argument is correct, it suggests or hints at the fact that contract law may not be doing as good a job as we might like as for protecting freedom of choice. Although I will add some qualifications to that as we proceed now. So let me turn then to my main line of argument, which has to do with whether or not agreement is in fact foundational to contract law. And I'm going to present two main lines of argument with one third bonus line of argument for thinking that agreement is not foundational to contract law. And the first argument is that the objective approach to the interpretation of contracts of of determining whether parties have reached an agreement in contract does not respect subjective intentions. So if courts are going to determine whether parties have reached an agreement by focusing on what a reasonable third party standing to the side of their contractual negotiations would have concluded about the nature of their agreement as opposed to what they themselves actually thought about the agreement, they are not, I would submit, respecting the party's subjective intentions. And we saw quite clearly in several of the cases that we discussed that this is what courts seem to care about. They seem to care about the objective third-party perspective on negotiations and communications between parties and not on the subjective first-person perspective on those communications and negotiations. So look, in one way, this is the centerpiece of the famous case of Carlisle versus Carbolic Smokeball. The company, at least if we believe their submissions in court, did not think that their ad was intended to be legally binding, wasn't intended to be an offer in law, and yet the court overruled their subjective perspective on the case by saying that an objective third party reading the ad would have concluded that there was a serious intention to be bound lying behind it because of the fact that the ad contained information regarding the deposit of money to pay out the reward. This is, of course, similarly true of the famous case about the objective approach to interpretation, the case of Smith v. Hughes. So as you'll recall, that's the case that's about the sale of oats for racehorses. So Smith, the party selling the oats, thought that he was selling new green oats. Hughes, the person purchasing the oats, thought that he was purchasing old oats. This, of course, despite the fact that Smith had provided him with a sample of oats, which happened to be new. So it's very clear from the testimony of the parties in this case that their subjective intentions did not join up with one another. They were not complementary to one another. Nevertheless, the court found that there was a binding legal contract because an objective third party standing to the side of this set of contractual negotiations would have concluded that there was an agreement reached to purchase new oats. But that objective third party is a fiction. It's something constructed by the courts for the convenience of interpreting and applying the law. It again shows no real regard for 
the subjective intentions of the parties to the case, which suggests, I would argue, that agreement is not what courts really care about. Now, look, you might come back at me and dispute this, and you'll say, well, of course the courts are going to adopt this objective approach to the interpretation of contractual negotiations and communications because there's a fundamental epistemic or epistemological problem. Epistemology has to do with knowledge. There's a fundamental knowledge gap, if you like, with respect to subjective intentions. We cannot climb inside the mind of another person. We cannot really ever know what another person is actually thinking. All we ever have to go on are their objective communications and signs, the language that they use, the gestures that they use, and so on. So courts have to focus on the interpretation of these external signs and communications. They can't focus on subjective intentions. And to have any hope of reaching some kind of conclusion about what parties intended, they have to focus on what an objective third party would have interpreted or understood those external signs to mean. So in philosophy, this epistemological problem with getting at subjective intentions is known as the the problem of their minds. So in a sense, this is contract laws grappling with this problem of other minds. And I think, look, my my response to that kind of counter-argument that it is just impractical to expect the courts to figure out what the parties actually intended is that it's right. Courts can't climb inside the minds of the parties. They have to go on the objective third-party perspective. But that kind of proves the point that I'm trying to make, which is that courts don't care about agreement. They don't care about whether the subjective intentions join up. They care about something else. They care about the convenient approach to interpreting rules or deciding whether people are in contractually binding circumstances. So the objection proves the point that I'm trying to make here. So that's the first argument that I wanted to make. The second argument is a little bit more complicated and involved and has multiple strands to it. But the basic gist of it is is as follows. That many of the formal rules of offer and acceptance, as we have encountered them and examined them so far in this course, when you interpret them properly, it becomes clear that they actually frequently ignore the subjective intentions of the parties and, in fact, end up imposing agreements upon parties when clearly there was none. Or maybe if I was to phrase that slightly less confusingly, I would say that the courts impose contracts on parties when clearly there was no agreement between parties. So let me try and give five examples of this, okay? So, first of all, I want to reflect on the idea of the distinction between an invitation to treat and an offer. So I mentioned in the lecture on offers that courts have historically found that there's a very important legal distinction between an invitation to treat and an offer. An invitation to treat invites somebody to begin contractual negotiations to be to make an offer to purchase an item, and it is not intended to be a legally binding offer. So goods that are advertised in shop windows, for example, or in newspapers or on television, whatever form of advertising, they're all classified as invitations to treat and are therefore not legally binding. They don't, to use the definition of an offer in law, they don't indicate or express a clear intention to be bound on specific terms and conditions. But ask yourself for a moment, is that really true? 
And I think you probably come to the conclusion that it's not true. If a shop owner displays goods in the window of their shop with a certain price tag attached to them, then it is often the case that they clearly intend that if somebody comes into the shop and picks that item off the shelf and brings it to the counter, they intend to be bound to sell it to the other party for that price. And in fact, this is something that has sometimes been recognized in courts of law. So if you remember the case of Fisher v. Bell, this is the case involving the sale of the flick knife, and this was deemed to be contrary to an act of the English Parliament forbidding the sale of flick knives, but the shop owner managed to finagle their way out of that charge in the case by suggesting that because the items were displayed in the shop window, they weren't actually offered for sale. Well, Lord Justice Parker in that case stated that this was kind of a nonsense, that clearly when items were displayed in a shop window, the person who displayed them intended to be bound to sell them at a certain price on uncertain terms and conditions. So in a sense, it's an artificial legal fiction to draw this sharp distinction between invitation to treat and offer. And the artificial distinction functions in such a way as to deny or ignore the subjective intentions of the parties in question. There's a second argument here as well, which has to do with the rules on acceptance. And if you recall this claim that silence can never amount to an acceptance, and I discussed this explicitly in relation to the case of Felthaus v. Bindley, where the uncle was selling the horse to the nephew and said, well, if I hear no more, I assume that the horse is mine. And later on, this horse was mistakenly, it appears, sold at an auction to a third party, and the uncle tried to get the horse back or to receive compensation for the sale of his own property. And the court held that there was no binding contract between the parties originally, the uncle and the nephew, because you can't accept an offer through silence, or you can't assume that an offer has been accepted through silence. Now, I mentioned at the time there's probably very good policy reasons for that rule, for saying that you can't accept an offer through silence because we want to avoid this phenomenon of inertia selling, or in a sense forcing people into contracts against their will. But if you read the judgment in Felthaus v. Bindley, it seems pretty clear that the application of the rule to that set of facts, ignored the agreement that was reached between the parties, because it seems that the uncle and the nephew thought that they were in a binding legal contract, and that the nephew had, in fact, accepted the uncle's offer. So again, a little bit like Carlisle versus Carbolic Smokepole or Smith v. Hughes, the court overrides the actual subjective intentions of the parties for a policy reason, for a policy rationale. Now, interestingly, that particular policy rationale is possibly one that protects freedom of choice by avoiding this phenomenon of inertia selling. And that highlights maybe an important disaggregation or disconnection between agreement and freedom of choice in some instances. Nevertheless, I would submit that it still proves my point, which is that, again, courts don't care necessarily about subjective intentions joining up between the parties. What they care about are other factors and other considerations. A third line of argument here in support of this contention, I think, has to do with the fact that real-world negotiations, communications between parties, rarely slot into the categories of offer and acceptance. It's actually sometimes difficult, particularly in more complex negotiations, to stipulate that one thing was an offer, one communication was an offer, and another communication was an acceptance. Oftentimes, the lines between these things are quite blurry. 
And that's actually something we encountered in the cases of Gibson and Storer. So these are the cases, if you recall, about the Manchester City Council selling the council houses to local residents. There was a change in the local authority, the government, the party in power, reversing an old policy, allowing the sale of council houses to residents. And this left some people who were in the midst of negotiations to purchase their houses in the lurch. And they tried to argue that the communications between themselves and the council had crossed the critical threshold between offer and acceptance to a finalized agreement. Now, one of the things that the judges remarked upon in trying to decide these cases was how difficult it actually was to try and slot them into the categories of offer and acceptance. And Lord Denning, in fact, highlighted this in, in particular. He said, look, I just can't apply the rules of offer and acceptance logically in this case to determine whether the parties have reached an agreement. So instead, what I'm going to try to do is look at all the negotiations, all the communications between them and work out myself whether they had reached some agreement. But his approach was overruled and rejected by the majority of the court. And they said, no, no, we still have to try and slot these communications into offer and acceptance categories. But I would suggest that in doing that, in trying to make the facts fit the abstract legal concepts, the court are, in a sense, ignoring again once more the subjective intentions of the parties in question. They're trying to fit facts to law rather than law to facts. And this brings me to the fourth point that I wanted to make, and this may in some sense be a continuation of the previous point, which just has to do with the approach that's adopted by courts in these battle of the forms cases. So we discussed those in the most recent lecture. So I'm thinking here of cases like Butler v. Accelocorp, GHSB versus AB Electronics, Tech Data Connections, Cleveland Bridge Corporation, all these examples that we discussed in, in the previous lecture. What they share in common is an attempt by the courts to, again, slot the communications between the parties into the categories of offer, acceptance, and counteroffer. And the dominant approach adopted, which is favored by the majority in the Butler v. Accelo Corp case, is that, well, what you have to do is you, you say, well, one thing is an offer, one thing is a counteroffer, the counteroffer kills the original offer, and if the other party didn't communicate a disagreement with the counteroffer and through their conduct and other behavior seemed to suggest that they accepted the counteroffer, then we say that there has been a contract finalized and formalized between the parties, even if it seems clear subsequently that the parties did not intend, or at least one of the parties did not intend for there to be an agreement between, reached between them on those terms and conditions. And that, of course, is exactly what happened in the Butler v. Accelocorp case. Butler thought that they were selling a machine that, on terms that concluded a price variation clause, and Accelocorp thought they, they were purchasing that machine on terms that did not include the price variation clause. So it's pretty clear from the facts of the case that the party's subjective intentions did not join up. Nevertheless, the court, by applying this offer, counteroffer acceptance analysis to the facts, imposed a contract on them, despite the fact that there was no agreement reached between them. Same thing happens in a later case called Tech Data versus Amphenol Limited, which I mentioned or alluded to in the previous lecture, but I didn't actually discuss the facts in any detail. So what happened in that case is that you had two parties, Tech Data and Amphenol, are part of a supply chain for engine control systems for Rolls-Royce. 
the tech data are buying certain items from Amphenol, they claim that they're delivered late and are not fit for purpose. They believed that they had purchased the items on their standard terms and conditions, as were stated in their purchase order, whereas tech data argued the reverse, that it was on their terms and conditions. It mattered because it had something to do with an exclusion of liability clause within the contract, which is a concept we'll come back to in a subsequent set of lectures on terms of contract. But the crucial point in this case is that if you applied the offer counter-offer acceptance approach, then it seems clear that Amphenol's terms and conditions should prevail because they got the last shot in in the Battle of the Forms. But Tech Data argued that you should actually look to the entirety of the history of relationships between the two parties, that they had been trading with one another for many years, and it was clear when you looked at that history that their terms and conditions should apply to the contract. The court said, no, we got to apply the standard analysis uh, from Butler v. Corp of offer, counter-offer acceptance, hence Amphenol are victorious. But again, you have here a court imposing a contract on the parties on terms and conditions with which one party did not agree and did not have the subjective intention to agree to those terms and conditions. Now, I think there are some other battles of the form cases where the courts are a little bit more realistic and they throw their hands up and say, well, no, there wasn't any clear offer and acceptance in this case, but maybe there was still agreement on other terms that weren't stated between the two parties. And that's the approach suggested in the case of GHSP versus AB Electronic, a very controversial approach. And of course, there's other cases like the Cleveland Bridge Corporation case where the court reaches the conclusion that actually there was never an agreement between the parties, and so you have to rely on other legal rules to resolve the case, the rules of restitution. But those counterexamples don't really defeat the point that I'm trying to make, which is that the offer-counteroffer acceptance type of analysis in this scenario oftentimes has the effect of ignoring subjective intentions and in a sense finding a contract when there was no agreement between the parties. So I think that continues to prove my point. And this brings me to the final line of argument that I wanted to introduce here, which has to do with the postal rule. And I think this is maybe the simplest argument of all, which is that if you look at the classic interpretation or application of the postal rule, which is that a contract is accepted at the point in time that somebody posts the acceptance to somebody, not when the posted acceptance is received by the offeror, well, that very clearly does not respect the subjective intentions of the parties, because it in a sense decides that a contract is complete at a point in time when another party is completely unaware of the acceptance of the other party. The letter is posted, accepting the offer, the letter gets lost, the offeror never learns about it, and yet they are still bound by a contract that they never knew came into existence. How can that respect the idea of agreement? Now, you may submit to me that, look, the postal rule is anachronistic, it's old-fashioned, the more modern rules on instantaneous forms of communication like email or other instant communication platforms very clearly do respect agreement, respect subjective intentions, because they say that a contract is only formed once the offeror learns of or receives the communication accepting the offer. But I think what I would say in response to that is that actually the postal rule continues to linger over and affect even these more modern rules on instantaneous forms of communication. And if you actually look at what the courts say in cases like, you know, Brinkabon versus Stahag Stahl, what they actually say is that 
a contract is complete once the communication is received by whatever device receives the communication, the computer or the telex machine or what, the fax machine, whatever it might be, not when the offeror actually reads or learns of the acceptance. So again, I would suggest even in these modern cases, what courts care about is not whether the subjective intentions join up, but rather whether certain formal conditions have been satisfied that seem convenient or useful from a commercial, uh, sorry, the perspective of commercial certainty. So look, a general objection to this whole line of argument that I've sketched might run as follows, that look, the rules on offer and acceptance, while they can be a poor fit for the reality of contractual negotiations, what they do is that they set up rules of the game, rules that parties who are negotiating to enter into a contract have to accept if they want to form a binding legal contract. And even if those rules are a little bit weird or historically anachronistic, like the postal rule, at least they are clear. And as long as you have clear rules and the parties know the nature of the game that they are playing, they can use those rules to their advantage and to ensure that they only enter into contracts that they genuinely agree to and that they subjectively intend to be bound by. So to put this another way, we might say something like, even if the rules lead to odd results in some few outlier cases where a contract is imposed upon parties against their actual subjective intention, these are genuine exceptions or anomalies in reality. Most, most of the time, people know the rules, they follow the rules, and they only enter into contracts that they genuinely agree to. So what I would say in response to, th to that is that I think there's probably some truth to it. There's some value to just having clear rules, even if they don't always respect agreement. But again, it doesn't defeat the point that I'm trying to make, which is that subjective agreement is not always foremost in the court's minds when they're trying to decide cases of contract law. What they care about is the formal application of the rules, not the subjective intentions of the parties. Furthermore, I would submit that many of those contractual rules serve other policy goals. Again, think about the rule about silence not being an acceptance. That serves another set of policy goals beyond respecting agreement. Same, I think, is probably true for the postal rule. When it was originally created, it was convenient to assume this and to impose the risk of a failure of receiving an acceptance on the party who chose to conclude a contract by post. Okay, so those are the two main arguments I wanted to make. First, about the objective interpretation of contracts not respecting agreements, and second, how the formal rules of offer and acceptance don't respect agreement. There is a third bodus argument I would make. It relies on something that we haven't covered in this course so far, so I'll just sketch it very briefly which is that certain areas of contract law set up default rules or terms of contract. So these are things that any contract concluded between the parties have to include. So you might have encountered this before when you studied something like you know, commerce or business studies. You might have come across the Sale of Goods Act or various acts on the Sale of Goods and Supply of Services Acts. And what these acts do is that they impose certain terms within to sorry, within contracts by default, that, for example, goods must match samples that are supplied to customers or goods must be of merchantable quality. And again, there's very good policy rationales for implying those kinds of default terms into contracts. But 
what I would suggest to you is that many times imposing or inferring these default rules or terms into contracts again involves ignoring or overriding the actual subjective intentions of the parties. And the same is true, incidentally, in employment law and kind of landlord-tenant law. Employment contracts are a unique type of contract, which we don't cover in much detail in this course. And the same is true of landlord-tenant leases or agreements. They're a type of contract, but they're heavily legislated for. And there are certain terms and conditions that have to be in every employment contract and in every lease or uh, tenancy agreement. And the very fact that those terms are imposed on those kinds of contractual agreements means, once more, that oftentimes you ignore or override the subjective intentions of the parties. Now, I won't develop that argument in any more detail, but I think it is, a, as I say, a third potential bonus argument in support of my main thesis, which is that agreement is not, contrary to what I said back in Lecture 2, really the foundation of contract law. The actual operation of the law, the actual interpretation and application of the rules and offer and acceptance suggests that something else is going on, something else is more fundamental to contract law. Okay, so that's where we're going to leave it here. That's the conclusion of my argument, my essay, if you like. What do you think of it? Do you think the argument is persuasive? How did I structure the argument? These are the things I now want you to reflect on. And in the next lecture, we're going to move on to the next topic in contract law.